we really don't understand the conditions of possibility for life. Maybe there are some ice blobs on Ceres and some weird extremophile bacteria lives there. That's entirely possible. So we try to mine their asteroid and sell it, and then they make a property claim. And all of a sudden, all of Earth's gold is owned by a bacterium on a distant asteroid. Right. That would be a bummer. <laughs> but those bacterium, they live in amazing gold houses. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to What The If. I am Philip Shane, and I am here to entertain you. <laughs> or to educate. Or to educate. We are here to enter, entercate you. Or, mm, yeah, it, that sounds kind of painful. <laughs> <laughs> and that voice you hear is Professor Matthew Stanley. How are you, sir? Pretty good. I'm feeling excellent as well, because last night I saw... The New York Philharmonic perform the soundtrack to Close Encounters live with the film. That's pretty awesome. It was amazing. If that's coming to your town, look out for it. I highly recommend it. Also, if you haven't seen Close Encounters in a long time, check it out. It seems it is. I have not watched it in a long time, actually. I'd be curious to see how it has aged. Yeah. It very well. I mean, there is one shot of a rotary phone. Uh, <laughs> that's part of the horror element of the movie yes yes although it's because uh that's the the mother of the little boy who lives in uh, muncie uh indiana where the aliens go to visit so you know she might still have a refund it is an excellent movie it holds up incredibly well uh some of the fashion a tiny bit different some of the, there's some television commercials obviously which are a little bit older i had to consciously say to myself what if there were cell phones it didn't jump out that way it didn't jump out it's like oh this is ridiculous because yeah. they had cell phones it sort of doesn't matter to the story you know all we know is if there if we did have cell phones there's one part of the movie where all our ringtones would be the uh, music that the aliens are sending the theme Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, yes, nice. the five notes all right jumping right in today we are featuring an if from one of our fabulous listeners now known and for all time known as a super ifer yeah it's definitely a lifetime appointment daniel mundlein Daniel, do I know where you are from? From somewhere in the universe. <laughs> Hopefully. Goodness. Daniel asks, what the if we brought an asteroid to Earth? Daniel also submitted the uh, our ep earlier episodes. So Daniel is now a two-time super-duper-ifer. Wow. Daniel had asked some a little while ago, what the, if there was no environmental protection agency? Mm, yeah. And that was an excellent episode. I Yeah, that was a good one. You can go to our website, whattheif.com, 
and check that out or scan back through your podcast feed there. Daniel asks, what would happen if we brought one of those asteroids back to Earth? Let's say it was super rich in gold, so we could use gold in everything. Mm -hmm. Even if we could bring an asteroid back, would the cost of doing so be cheaper than just digging those metals out of the ground? How do we get the metals to Earth? Do we load it up on a space shuttle? It doesn't seem like we could move very much material at one time. Great show. Thanks for doing it. And thank you for sending this in, Daniel. What the if... We brought an asteroid back to Earth. What say ye, Professor? Yeah, so our solar system is uh, full of them, right? There's all these uh, rocks wandering around in space. I, I suspect, like most of our listeners, my initial sense of asteroids was formed during the Empire Strikes Back. Wasn't a laser blast. Something hit us. Han, get up here. When the Millennium Falcon is trying to evade the Imperial fleet. Asteroids. Uh, uh, Julie said 271. Uh, what are you doing? You're not actually going into an asteroid field. They'd be crazy to follow us, wouldn't they? You don't have to do this to impress me. Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. The sense that asteroids are in these giant clumps and you have to work really hard to avoid them. We're going to get pulverized if we stay out here much longer. You can argue with that. Pulverized? I'm going in closer to one of the big ones. Closer? Closer. And that's not the case, unfortunately. We have an asteroid belt in the solar system because they tend to congregate sort of in between Mars and Jupiter. But the distance between them is still titanically large, like hundreds of times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. I think it's an important uh, misconception that we need to, to think about first. So even if you're hanging out on an asteroid in the densest part of the asteroid belt, you can't see another one. One at a time. The adventure element of dodging the asteroids is nil, so sorry. So the worst belt one could wear. <laughs> Except maybe some of those rhinestone ones from like the 70s. Those were pretty bad belts. You know, it's like there are, there are new belts now, which I have. I think they're new. New to me anyway. Where you can actually put the... What do you call the little thing, the little thing that when you pull the belt around you, usually you're limited to the holes that are in the belt. Yeah. And so this would be, a, this, asteroid, this asteroid belt, if you were wearing this, try to keep your pants up, the holes would be very far apart. Yeah, that's right. So not all that helpful. When did they realize there were enough of them to call it a belt? Oh, that's a good question that I don't know the answer to, but it must be... <laughs> Second quarter of the 19th century, though, is when they start charting enough of these to, to realize a pattern. Most recently, we have visited Vespa and Ceres. Yep. Okay. Two biggest ones. Yeah, this is really the golden age of asteroid studies right now. 
because this is in the last few years is the first time we've actually been able to interact with one of these. Otherwise, we've just been able to look at them. And for the most part, they're not that exciting to look at from a distance. They're these potato-shaped things that kind of spin around. And that's not all that exciting. So we've got, uh, yeah, so we've got these uh, belts out there. But one of the things that makes them interesting is what they're made of, at least hopefully, right? There's two basic kinds. There's the rocky kind and the metallic kind. So the rocky kind are, as the name suggests, uh, rocks. All right. There's rock and roll (laughs) and heavy metal. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And the rocks, one possibility, and this is actually sort of suggested by some of the the recent studies, the up-close studies too, is that instead of it being one big chunk of rock, which is sort of what you would anticipate, it's actually just a whole bunch of little pebbles held together by their own gravity. So from our point of view, it's hard to tell whether they're solid or not. A lot of the the forces that we're used to thinking of as forming rocks here on Earth are not available on asteroids. So things like geological forces, the geological forces, the intense pressures and temperatures that we get under the surface of the Earth are due to the Earth being so big. So if the body isn't big enough, then it never generates those high internal temperatures and pressures that do things like form pebbles into rocks. That's something of a mystery. It's not actually entirely clear what that's like. But there's an upside to that, too, on the metallic side of these. Here on Earth, because we have weathering and erosion and then uh, these geological forces as well, metals get pulled down into the core of the Earth pretty quickly. They melt and then just buoyancy kind of pulls them down. So what that means is we're just left with the dregs here at the surface. We, meaning the Earth, um, were originally this big mixture of different kinds of rocks. And as it heated up during the process of formation, the heavy metals sank to the bottom. The same way heavy liquids sink to the bottom of a mixture. It's like those drinks you get, like a... I don't think a white Russian is like this, but I can say that my iced cappuccino, Mm -hmm. you will get the milk at the bottom. And this is why you stir your coffee. But no one has, no one can stir the earth. <laughs> I, I'm writing that down. What the if you could stir the earth? Actually, that'd be, that'd be kind of amazing. Um, Volcanoes so, a little bit, you know. Yeah, so, but even then, this, uh, you know, what we think of as these gigantic systems, think of things like volcanoes, are tiny compared to the, the whole structure of the earth. But out on asteroids, we do, they don't get... They generally don't get hot and squeezed enough to have the metals do this process. A lot of asteroids just are big chunks of metal because they've never had to go through this process, right? Aren't some of them, I guess this is just a theory, but a planet or protoplanet that got torn up. So maybe the metals started to form and then what, like, isn't one of them where they say could be an exposed core? Yeah, that's possible. Most asteroids, 
the consensus is, are leftovers from the early formation of the solar system. So in the early days, say 5 billion years ago, before the planets had fully formed, there's just a lot of dust and small rocks floating around in the solar system. Back when there were rotary phones. (laughs) (laughs) On the cords, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So some of those form into planets, and some of them fall into the sun or get knocked out of orbit or whatnot. Some of them just hang out. One of the reasons asteroids, and comets for that matter, are interesting scientifically is because they are these remnants from the earliest formation of our solar system. They're kind of giant time capsules waiting out there in space for us to to investigate. And where do we get the gold? Where's the gold? Oh, right. (laughs) So, so some of these asteroids, because they've got these uh, metals that are sort of still in their raw form, as it will, as it even though the asteroids are small on planetary scales, they're large on human scales. So, like if you go gold mining, say, right? You think of uh, again, I don't know which which adventure movie this is, but you think of a gold mine as sort of you know a tunnel into the ground, and there's chunks of gold in the wall, and you you know you pull pull out a big block of it and stick it in your pocket or something. That's not. A, a rich gold mine will have tiny flecks in the wall. A, a coin-sized piece of gold would be a huge strike. My image of a gold mine is <laughs> its not even the mine itself. It's the old prospector wearing a hat and yep. Levi's, <laughs> and he has a pan, and he's in a creek, and he's sifting through the, the mud or whatever at the bottom of it, the, and then he finds a gold nugget. That's right, exactly. So a nugget would be a huge thing. What you actually find are these little flecks, and hopefully you find enough flecks to to add up. So to give you a, a sense of this, you took all of the gold ever mined by human beings over the course of human history, it would form a cube about 100 feet on a side. No way! That's all the gold human beings have ever encountered. Wow. There's gold in them asteroids. (laughs) Gold in them hills. So what what I'm going to stress there is, for precious metals, the amount we have is actually quite tiny in an absolute sense. Hence the precious. Even if a metallic asteroid only has a couple percent gold in it, that's still a huge proportion of all the gold that human beings have ever found here on Earth. So because the metals are are found in this unspoiled state, they would be very accessible. So they're easy to get to. Oh, interesting, right, because there's, it's just, especially if the asteroid is really a, a floating blob of pebbles, Barely holding well, so that's together. The, that's the stony kind, right? Remember, there's the, oh. the stony, the metallic. And I should say there there's an existential significance to that difference too, which is that a stony asteroid that finds its way into the Earth's gravitational field and comes plunging into our atmosphere uh, will probably explode. Okay, because the little pebbles just can't take the the, the stresses of atmospheric reentry. So then you get what's called a bolide, where a uh, 
uh, an object entering the Earth's atmosphere explodes. So like that's what you had over Chelyabinsk several years ago, if you remember that. That's a stony asteroid. Um, that, so they're, they're impressive, but they just do surface damage. Whereas a metallic asteroid is strong enough that it can survive re-entry, so it can come down and hit you. Like, for instance, the, the giant crater that remains in Arizona, mm-hmm. a meteor crater, as it's, as it's so colorfully called, <laughs> <laughs> has uh, actually Neil Tyson keeps a huge chunk of it mm-hmm. in his desk. Oh, nice. To, with, which, with which to beat recalcitrant employees. That's right. It's true. It's true. Or when visitors come from History Channel, magically... You can just pull it out. We yeah. get to see it, yeah. And it is, he- it is heavy. Heavy, heavy, heavy. And that's because, again, we're not used to dealing with sort of chunks of pure metal. Right. I should be clear, it is, it is massive, very massive, right? So it's a small thing that he, a small chunk he has, it's tremendously heavy in your hand. Visiting Meteor Crater in Arizona is totally worth it, should you find yourself within 100 miles of it. And one of the things I think is so great is that they've got the remains of the original impactor there in the museum. Seeing the scale of the crater, which is, you know, miles across, and then this sort of desk-sized chunk of metal, and you see, wow, that that's really something, right? And for an interesting sort of a, a side note of that is this, this pure metal falling from the sky was an important source of metal for tools and weapons for some civilizations before they developed the ability to, to smelt metals on their own. Oh, right. Wow. Like in, in Indonesia, there's a special kind of knife just made from meteoric metal, which is pretty badass. Yeah, boy, that would really give you quite the uh, mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you imagine exactly? It's literally the weapons of the gods. Yeah. Wow, that's super cool. Can you tell, like, d- does the metal, when we're talking about these metal asteroids versus stony asteroids, is it, like, obvious? Or do the when metal you're ones... looking at them? Yeah. Um, well, so when we're looking at them from a distance, that is, like, through telescopes and stuff, this is going to sound kind of boring. The metallic asteroids are shiny and the stony ones are not. Hey, <laughs> so go with what you got, you know? That's, that's pretty much it. And then by looking at the, the light that comes off of them, then we can learn things like what they're made of. So that's when we, we break out our tool called a spectroscope and we can tell. So that's how we know, for instance, that, the, uh, metallic, that there are asteroids out there with hundreds of tons of gold in them. We know they're out there there with hundreds of tons of gold. Oh, yeah. Where's that one? (laughs) Uh, It's just to the left. (laughs) It's just you go to Greenland and you turn left. (laughs) (laughs) So the suggestion is, you know, from our listener, and uh, certainly other people have made this suggestion too, let's go get one of these. So even if we get a fairly small one, could we maneuver it down to Earth orbit? Say... You know, space shuttle level, and then just make mining trips up there. We could double the amount of gold available to human beings, like overnight. That's crazy. Because, you know, humans are greedy and we like gold. That seems a likely first choice. There are, of course, 
some worries we might want to, to keep in mind. One is that an asteroid is fairly big and fairly dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And the metal ones are the ones that survive. Right. <laughs> the, the image here is that we essentially strap an engine onto it and use our knowledge of physics and celestial dynamics to figure out what direction we should point the asteroid in. Realistically, probably years later, it slides into earthly orbit. It's, um, we'd want to kind of take our time, Nestor. This would be like a great gift of one Titan to his grandchild. <laughs> You know, like, yeah. I got it. I got the okay. thing. I'm sending mm -hmm. it. It's actually be an interesting story, actually. Yeah, so maybe it's like 10 generations later, you're going to be the one responsible. Yeah, that could be. And the bigger, obviously, the, the bigger the asteroid, the um, longer it would take. But, you know, sometimes human beings make mistakes. Somebody writes a seven instead of a six on one of the calculations. <laughs> and instead of the asteroids sliding nicely into orbit, it lands in New Jersey. And suddenly New Jersey takes over from California as the golden <laughs> state. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so not all bad, right? And that, so that issue might be something you want to keep in mind when you're selecting your original asteroid. Now, now here's a, here's a, a real what the if. Could we... Is it possible to actually slowly bring it down? That would be an amazing thing. Oh, um, yeah. And the answer is almost certainly no, right? It's hard to deorbit things in a gentle way. Right. You practically need whatever it is you need to launch such a thing. Yeah, you'd be much better off just keeping it in orbit and going up to, to make visits. Economic impact. It would be tremendous. The price of gold drops overnight. Even before any actual gold comes down from it. And But then you think about the, the cost of this, too. So a useful rule of thumb is to get something into orbit, say, your cat. It costs about that thing's weight in gold. Oh, wow. That suggests that asteroid mining would be at best a break-even. Well, but as it comes de coming down, wouldn't be that hard. Yeah, but I mean, you have to go up and get it, right? So there's certainly technological advances that that would make it profitable, but right now it's not really clear that it would make anybody rich, but it would certainly destroy the world economy. Now, we know that on the space station, because of this bizarre incident where a hole appeared, seemingly intentionally drilled in the wall of the space shuttle, we know there are astronauts there and they have drills. <laughs> so they're ready. They are ready to go, yes. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, the documentary with Bruce Willis, Armageddon, Yeah, right. You know, we're sitting on four million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. Oh, makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah. Ah, all right. Yeah, so we can, we can check that out, too. Is there something... Gold's property 
beyond jewelry. So he was talking about it being used in electronics. Yeah. Yeah. So gold is extremely conductive and it doesn't tarnish easily. That is, right. um, it'll just stay gold for a while. Right. Um, so that makes it useful for all sorts of electrical applications. But as you say, it's quite expensive. Silver and copper are actually both better conductors than gold, but they both tarnish easily. It's not, I don't know off the top of my head what the, the perfect application is if you have unlimited amounts of gold. But one could imagine maybe, you know, lossless transmission systems, maybe a little easier to get electricity from point A to point B. Or just decoration. I mean, you know. Well, actually, I must... I mean, you could have, yeah, gold Crocs, right? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> gold Crocs, yes. Well, I know certain world leaders who would definitely be wearing gold Crocs be into that. if they could. Uh, now, now, there's other metals as well, because uh, aren't there, there are precious metals that are, yep, we are running out of? There yeah, too. that's right. So we'd have... Um, I think uh, better choices would be something like uh, rare earth metals, um, like, say, neodymium, things that are actually really hard to refine and we're using ever-increasing amounts of. I actually don't know what the availability of this is, but if somebody could find a lithium asteroid, that would be pretty kick-ass. And the reason for that is we use lithium in anything that has a portable battery, like your phone, probably has lithium. In the battery, so, but right. that that battery. I mean, you can't bring lithium batteries on planes now. I can't <clears> imagine yeah. a, a spaceship that would safely tug a lith. I mean, you know, okay, great. Now we have a, <laughs> a gigantic lithium battery floating around the. <laughs> but I don't know. It seems like kind of a truism that the the most fun things in terms of human industrial development are explosive too. So that's true. What can you do? That's yeah. true. That's true. You mentioned neodymium. Neodymium. Yeah. What is that? That is a very heavy, very magnetic metal used for uh, high-intensity magnetic applications. Don't need very much of it, but there isn't much of it out there either. For high-tech stuff, you want it. Yeah. And there's a whole family of metals. It's called these rare earth metals that are actually not all that rare, but they're hard to refine. Hard to get out of the rocks. Yeah. So I think that does the um, we've kind of been hand waving. I think that the giant technological development here, which is the ability to move an asteroid around. Right? We have. I mean, we still have trouble getting probes to planets, probes the the size of cars. So the idea that we could move something the size of a house in a reliable way around the solar system is a, a non-trivial thing. It's certainly within the realm of possibility. If we devoted the resources to it, we could do it. We could do it within our lifetime. Carl Sagan thought about this a little while ago. He was thinking about it in the context of planetary defense. That is, what if we found that there was an asteroid headed towards the planet? The, the debate back in the 1980s about this among scientists was, should we develop a system for maneuvering asteroids now so it's ready to go if we see a dangerous one? Many people said, yes, we, of course we should have that ready to go. It's like you know, having a life insurance policy. And then there's the added economic benefit that you can use asteroids for your own purposes. But Sagan says, look, I don't know if it's actually a great idea for human beings to have this power ready to go. 
Because he says, is it more likely that we're going to save the planet from a rogue asteroid or some crazy leader is going to use this to drop an asteroid on somebody he doesn't like? Oh, wow. He, Carl Sagan said that. He did. Yeah. Because he says, you know, look at uh, look at what human beings do with technology. If we have the ability to hurt each other with it, we will. And this this could literally destroy all life on the planet. Let's hold off on actually building this capability. And then, of course, we haven't built such a thing, and not because of Sagan's warning, but just because it hasn't seemed worth the investment yet. Right. Although NASA has a program. Yeah, we have a planetary defense office. And right now, most of those resources go to detection, looking to see where the asteroids are, and to see if there's one that's in a dangerous spot for us. But I was also thinking, there is a mission... It hasn't happened yet, but it feels like it's been imminent for a while where we where NASA is going to try moving an asteroid. That's the plan. We'll see if see how it goes. Fortunately, we don't have any crazy world leaders right now. So we're exactly fine. right. It's really we're a model of stability <laughs> all around the world these right. days. Yeah. This is why we need Space Force to protect yes, us against <laughs> the asteroids. That'll so definitely mellow things out. That'll yeah. be coming in. Jumping way forward, once this is achieved, suddenly there's just going to, we're going to be bringing asteroids like crazy. Like there's going to be, we're going to have a ring around the Earth of all these asteroids that we're bringing into to mine. Yeah, I could believe that. And it's uh, one nice side effect of that might be if, if we have orbit full of useful raw materials and we're good at getting up and down from orbit, we can just outsource all of our industry to that ring of asteroids. We can take all of the polluting, awful manufacturing we do here on the surface of the Earth and put it up into orbit. So it can fall back on us. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully, again, to New Jersey. Yeah. Well, yeah, New Jersey's ready to go. It's already <laughs> it's covered in pollutants. Whereas New York is just, you know... It's perfectly pristine. <laughs> Actually, that's an interesting thing, too, to imagine. It's sort of like a you know, like I love in Blade Runner, everything's dirty, and you know, it's like I can imagine that there, there's a huge ring of rocks all around the Earth now, and so the sky is just not just the sky, but like all the whole sphere around the Earth is just like waste. Yeah, just floating factories and pollution, and that would be awful. But would you rather have it there or in, you know, our rivers? If we think back to the EPA episode, right? Well, I'm saying, I'm guessing that would fall back into the sky and eventually onto the Earth. Well, I mean, just stick it on a stable, non-return orbit, and it should stay up there for at least thousands of years. Ah. uh. Oh, you're saying, so we could mine something not as it's stuck in orbit? Or what is a non-return orbit? Uh, just meaning it won't ever come back into the the atmosphere of the ah, Earth. So, right. so we get an iridium asteroid and put it on a, a high orbit around the Earth, and then we stick our iridium processing factory on that or on that asteroid. So it just hangs out there and it does all its work in space, and all the slag and pollutants just get kept on the asteroid in space. And then we get our nice clean iridium here on the surface of the Earth, and we don't have to worry about it. Right, right. Or I can imagine like the Lagrange points, places where they're gravitationally stable, but stay at a set distance from the place. And eventually you wouldn't even need to bring them back here. I mean, I feel like the thing to bring it back 
the reason for collecting them all here or somewhere is so that you can sort of you don't have to build as much machinery to to mine them. They just bring them to the machines. But whereas once, for instance, like in Kim Stanley Robinson's books, you know, he has robots. Von Neumann. Von Neumann machines, yeah. Right, robots that build robots that build robots. Uh, all we have to do is send something out. It Wherever it finds an asteroid, it just digs it up and starts shooting it back here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So that would be uh, another option, actually. Instead of bringing it back, bringing the whole asteroid back, you just build what's called a mass driver on the asteroid out in its natural orbit and have it just fire shiploads of of material back to Earth. And then you have a mass driver on the surface of the Earth that catches it. So that can be a handy solution, too. This actually makes the rogue leader problem even worse, though, because some disaffected miner just uncalibrates that. And this is actually, I should say, the the plot of the Heinlein, uh, Robert Heinlein classic novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. There's a a mass driver on the moon, and the the miners there rebel, start using the mass driver to bombard earthly cities. I can also give a shout out to our uh, one of our favorite guests, Alistair Reynolds, a science fiction writer who whose whole series of books, Blue Remembered Earths, and the two sequels to that, follow a family that, that, that is the family that gets rich by building this whole system throughout the solar system, figuring out ways to find asteroids, mine them, and then uh, ship the materials back. Do we know... If we were to collect all the asteroids in the asteroid belt first, let's say, how much does that help? Do we know the total amount or is there some estimate? I do not have that number at hand, but we would certainly have, we could certainly make a good estimate of it. And again, certainly, I would imagine it would be hundreds of times the amount, total amount of metal ever mined and smelted here on Earth. But we will use it up. No doubt. Oh, sure. Yeah. No we're question. Very, because now it's like, oh, we we're have, humans. <laughs> exactly. We have so much of it. So we get sloppy again and and we eat it up. Yeah. Well, maybe we use it to build a Dyson sphere and enclose our star. Yeah. I'm going to guess there's not nearly enough to do that. No, but we could probably build an orbital Ian Banks style. But since we're in a political zone, somebody would deny the science involved there. And promise us a Dyson Sphere. <laughs> We've got to build the Dyson Sphere. And, uh, and it wouldn't work. Now, Oumuamua, mm-hmm. the, the great visiting asteroid, the only asteroid that we know of that came from outside the solar system, although it seems... Right, say, it looks like there's a new candidate, like as of today. Right. A comet, right? Mm-hmm. Amazing. We don't know enough about what's on those, I guess, to say whether they have something on there that we really don't have. I'm not sure. I don't, I, I, I don't remember seeing any um, estimates of the composition. I mean, surely there are some, but I haven't seen them. Yeah. Now, the final great leap here is that, are, is it possible there are living things on these asteroids? As of now? I think the general answer would be no, because the, all the life we know of requires higher temperatures and some liquid water 
and a certain amount of stability. That's yeah. the thing. So Ceres, yeah. the thing about Ceres was spooky when they found it. It had very bright spots on it that turned out to be ice. I can't remember if it turned out to be ice or, or salt. salt deposits, I Correct. think. But, but I should say we really don't understand the, the conditions of possibility for life. Maybe there are some ice blobs on Ceres and some weird extremophile bacteria lives there. That's entirely possible. And, you know, so we try to mine their asteroid and sell it, and then they make a property claim. And all of a sudden, all of Earth's gold is owned by a bacterium on a distant asteroid. Right. That would be a bummer. But those bacterium, they live in amazing gold houses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I don't know what conspicuous consumption for a bacterium looks like. So I think it's other bacterium or <laughs> <laughs> just piles of bacterium. Yeah, just eating. <laughs> eating. Or cheese, right? They, they probably like cheese. Yeah, and so so th this again is one of those ifs that has so many other ifs in it. All it takes is one asteroid having some unusually high concentration of something that we've never had that would just be uh, insanely um, useful or will change everything. Oh, we found this substance and boom, everything changes. This may be one of the very few ifs that has a profit motive behind it. And to that, I sal <laughs> salute you, Daniel. You know, first, oh, I can see where Daniel's going now. His first if, which we did a little while ago, and again, I urge you, go to whattheif.com and check it out. What the if there was no Environmental Protection Agency? So he's gotten rid of the EPA, and now he's ready to start mining. You know, that is kind of suspicious now that you mention it. <laughs> and we've given him all the tips. Daniel, if we could have <laughs> no. just a few shares in your, your uh, solar system-wide mining corporation. <laughs> That yeah. would be that would be fantastic. Daniel the gold miner, thank you so much. You are going to receive a fabulous finger puppet made of not very precious materials. Oh, I'll say neodymium, that'd be great. Neodymium yeah. or perhaps 100% cotton. But but depicting a very precious and fanciful and smile inducing scientist, portrait of a scientist or a science fiction character from the Unemployed Philosophers Guild. Go to philosophersguild.com and you can get a discount from them uh, if you use the coupon code WTIF. 10% off Ooh. anything on the site. Hilarious gifts and things like that. And Daniel, thank you so much for all of you. Please uh, send in your ideas as well. Uh, or just questions. You know, you, you don't have to know how it becomes an if. Just so, what are some interesting things you've read about, heard about, wondered about? You can email us at feedback at whattheif.com. Or just go to the website, whattheif.com, and click contact. We are also on Twitter at whattheifshow. And if you're on Facebook, you can find us there. We have some very exciting guests coming up. I'm gonna I'm gonna restrain from saying who they are until they're exactly scheduled. But wow, can't give it away. Great writers, great scientists. Mm -hmm. Very impressive people. Incredible, very exciting. Like going out and mining asteroids and bringing back to the Earth, we have been going out and finding incredible people, and we will be. They are That's being. True. We're yeah. using nuclear weapons to bring <laughs> some of these legendary figures. It's the only way we could persuade them to 
come talk to us. He's threatening them with nuclear weapons. Come back to planet if. <laughs> all right. And so in the meantime, as we imagine all of these asteroids flying towards us with their nuclear propulsion systems and the word Titanic bandied about. <laughs> yeah, nothing's going to go wrong. Nothing could possibly go wrong. And we imagine what is going to happen. What the if when they get here? What 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 ifs remain coming up next week and the week after and the week after? We can't help but shudder and shiver and shake and scream into the solar system. What, what the... the-